And God, may we just fall in love with you just more and more each day. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. All right, we are going to continue in the book of Ephesians. We have tackled chapter one. It took us three weeks to, uh, to finish chapter one. We kind of broke it down and, and spent a lot of time talking about um, who we are as defined by what God's word says about us, who God is. Um, we talked about the Holy Spirit and we talked about our inheritance um, and we talked about how um, Paul prays without ceasing for the Ephesian church. Um, and th- this week, we're going to talk about the first part of chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which um, all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's perfect. God um, spoke it into existence, and it's all useful, and it's all helpful, and it's all beautiful. But Ephesians chapter 2 is one of the most beautifully written passages in Scripture, and also one of the most powerful uh, because here we get um, kind of two parts. We get our condition, but then we're also going to get what God does in response to our condition, God's compassion. Um, and so tonight, I want us to look in Ephesians chapter 2. As Paul kind of transes- uh, transitions a little bit um, from what he talks about in chapter 1. So let's read together real quickly the first 10 verses of Ephesians. Okay, so it says, um, and you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It was by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, there's a lot going on there. But if we, if we start off just in verse 1, I want us to look at a few things. First of all, if you are taking notes, for the two of you that take notes, um, I want us to, to focus on two key truths. Okay, two things that are like mirror images of each other, okay? The first is that Jesus Christ was dead, but God raised and exalted him. Jesus Christ was dead, but God raised him from the dead and also exalted him. What does it mean to exalt someone? Anybody know? What's that? To honor them? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay, God not only raised Jesus from the dead, not only did he bring him back to life, but he seated him at his very right hand. He lifted him up. Okay, to a higher status or stature. Okay, all right, and so Jesus Christ was dead, but God raised and exalted him. And the second truth is, you were also dead, but God raised and exalted you with Christ. You were also dead, but God raised and exalted you with Christ. And we're going to see both of these things happen. Jesus is raised from the dead so that you and I can have new life. And then God gives us new life and raises us and exalts us with Christ. Remember in chapter one, we looked at how 
you and I, if we are in Christ, if we are Christ followers, we have been given uh, an inheritance. We have been made co-heirs with Jesus. Okay, not just heirs, but co-heirs with Jesus. And so we, we have this great inheritance that has been sealed with the Holy Spirit and promised and is already secured for us in eternity. All right, so now Paul talks about this idea of raising something from the dead and giving it life. So I want us to look at two different things tonight. I want us to look at our condition, number one, but then God's compassion. Our condition and God's compassion. That's what we're going to see in chapter two. So the first three verses here are going to talk about who we are, who we were before Christ, okay? And so let's read it again. Uh, Chapter two, verse one says, you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. Okay, so the first part of our condition is that we were what? Dead. You guys know what dead means, right? All right, we, dead, okay? Yeah, we were, we were dead, all right? Has anyone ever seen anything that was dead? A person or an animal or a plant or whatever, all right? If you haven't seen something that was dead yet, at some point in your life, you are going to see something die, unfortunately. And being being dead is is uh it's not fun. Seeing something dead is not fun, right? Dead is final. It's permanent, right? Maybe you have seen a dead animal in the road. That animal isn't getting up and walking again, all right? Especially after it's been ro- run over like the 40th time. All right, it's disgusting, right? Yes, deer too. Thank you, Joe. All right. But like dead stuff just doesn't come back. And when Paul writes about this, he means that that we had been sentenced to physical death as a result of what? Our sin and trespasses, it says, right? We were dead in both our sin and our trespasses. Now, it's interesting that he says trespasses and sins, two different words. What's the difference there, you think? Anybody know? Why would he say both of them? It's okay. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect anybody to know. All right, so trespasses and sins... In the Greek, are two different, there's two different words there. We think um, like they're the, they're the same thing, right? In the Lord's Prayer, we talk about uh, those who trespass against us. You know, let us, you, you remember that in the Lord's Prayer? All right, forgive us our trespasses, those who trespass against us. Sometimes we change those with debt and debtor, right? Um, but trespass is, is, is not the same as sin. Sin is something that you are actively doing that is wrong, that is disobedient. A trespass in, in Greek translates more toward you you come up short or you kind of miss the mark. It's, it's not the exact same thing. And so what Paul is really talking about is the words that we would use today is that there's, it's omission and commission. It's, it's two different things. It's, it's that we are sinning and doing things that are wrong, but we're also failing to live up to the standard of God. And so he's covering both. It's, it's an active and a passive thing. It's, it's we are actively rebelling against God, which is sin, but there are also things and areas in our lives that fail to live up to God's standard for us, which is trespasses. And so there's, there's really two different things there in the Greek that Paul's trying to get. And they don't get translated 100% accurately in the English. But really what Paul's trying to do is, is to tell the, the people at Ephesus that you were dead. You had no hope because of the fact that your life is, uh, is openly in dis- disobedience to God. And that's why you have this, this physical and spiritual death, okay? 
you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. That's the first part of our condition, that we are dead, okay? The second part, and continue um, following the course of this world. The spirit that is now, or sorry, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the second thing we see is not only are we dead, but we're also enslaved. And he breaks it down into three parts there. He says that, that you're enslaved to three different things. The, the course of this world, you're enslaved to what's going on in the world, all right? You're also enslaved to Satan, following the, the prince of the power of the air, which is talking about Satan there. But also enslaved to the passions of the flesh, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, um, that you are uh, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. So our condition is such that we are dead, but we're also enslaved to all of these things, right? We've seen dead things, right? Uh, can anybody think of something that is enslaved to something else? Do you have a picture of slavery in your head? Can you think, what, when you hear the word slavery, what do you think of? Let's be honest. What's that? Okay, all right, yeah, slavery in America uh, during the, uh, the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, Okay. So you, that's probably in, in here what we would most often think of, is we would think of like the transcontinental slave trade, right? Um, we would think about um, how ships came to Africa and then enslaved uh, Africans and then brought them to uh, the Caribbean and to the Americas. And, and there was this, this huge enterprise going on. And, and people of, of color were uh, enslaved for centuries. That's what comes to our mind someone owning someone else as their property, devaluing them in such a way that they considered them property and not actual human beings, okay? That's what comes to our mind, right? And so that idea of slavery is that, that the, the person is serving their master, right? In that, in that situation, the slave would serve their master because they really had no choice, right? It wasn't a volunteer slavery. They were enslaved, and so what Paul writes about here is he's, he's using this same kind of imagery here to talk about how we were like mindless, um, thoughtless humans just following the things of this world, following Satan, and following the desires of our own mind and body, he says. And really he's talking about our mind and our heart, our, our, what we desired from our head point of view, right, logically, but also what our emotions and our passions desired. And Paul says not only were we dead, but we were living in this, this place where we were enslaved to something. And so the first thing he talks about is that we were enslaved to this world. What, what do you think he means by being enslaved to the world? The things of this world, right? But what, is, what, does, that, what does that mean, things of this world? What does that mean? Okay, yeah, we let the world dictate to us what we're supposed to do. Can, can anybody give me an example of how we, we allow the world to tell us what we're supposed to do? Social media, yeah, absolutely, right? If, if, if nobody else in here had an Instagram, right, you wouldn't have an Instagram, right? I'm not saying Instagram's bad, but, but social media drives us, right? That's one example. And not only do we, do we get on a social media platform because our friends have it, but then uh, there's this standard that we, we feel we have to live up to sometimes, right? The, the world is, is leading us. The social media does it. Um, the social issues kind of, of guide us sometimes. Politics guides us. 
Our, our schedule, the things that we have to do guide us. Uh, work guides us, right? Work sets certain parameters on us that, that we follow. We let the world so often dictate what it is that we value, what we place value in, right? Think about it. You live in America, which is a great place to live, right? We have all kinds of liberties and freedoms, right? There's this thing called the American dream, right? And what makes the American dream so powerful is that we are told that no matter who you are, where you come from, if you work hard enough, right, and have the right mindset, that you can achieve your dreams, right? You can have kind of that rags to riches story, that you can start off with nothing and become something because America is the land of opportunity, right? And so that's a good thing, right? It's, it's good that there's hope for people. But sometimes we worship that idea of the American dream because we, we not only seek to become better, but it's this idea that we want more and more and more, and life becomes all about climbing the rungs on a, on a ladder in America, right? And in other places too, but I'm using that context as an example because that's where we live, right? And so we know that we have to do really well in school, right, to be able to, to or in athletics or both, to be able to get scholarships to go to college because that's the next logical step after, after high school is to go to college and get into the, to the best college and college paid for so that we can get a degree, and we want to get a degree where we're going to make lots of money and be successful, right? And so we want to do that. And then we also, uh, we need to have uh, the perfect spouse, right? The, and not the spouse that God necessarily tells us we need to have, but we need to have the spouse that the world tells us we need to have. And this 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 constant thing. We need to have so much money set aside for retirement. We need to go on so many vacations, and we need to tell everybody where we're going on vacation so they know that we have money to go on vacation, right? And we got to post pictures of the new house we're building so people know how big the new house is that we're building, right? And, and that's this, this worldly influence telling us what our lives are supposed to look like. We're slaves to the world. But Paul also says that we're slaves to Satan. And just like we talked about the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago being very real and being present and being active, Satan is just as real and just as present and just as active as the Holy Spirit. And Paul's, Paul's telling the church at Ephesus and surrounding areas that Satan um, is, is very cunning and very intelligent um, and wants to guide us as well. Just like we become enslaved to the world, sometimes we can allow Satan in our heart and in our mind and allow Satan to guide us. And then thirdly, he says that we're also enslaved to the passions of our heart and passions of our mind, the passions of our body. It goes up kind of back to this idea of sin, that we allow the passions of our, our soul and our body and our mind to, to guide us. And so what happens is sometimes even though God created relationships, he created friendships, he created relationships between man and woman, marriages, and he created all of these beautiful things, there are times where we let those passions and desires for other people drive us rather than allowing God, the Holy Spirit, to drive us. Right, you've seen this in your own life where a friendship or um, a, a dating relationship is what drives us. It's what wakes us up in the morning, what gives us strength and hope to get through the day, right? And the problem becomes, though, is when we place everything that we have into that relationship, what happens when that relationship ends? Our life begins to fall apart because we've placed all of our value, all of our identity, all of our self-worth in a relationship, and so, ladies, we, we place everything that we have in, in what this boy says about us, what he does for us, and how he treats us, and, and how much we love him, and we're going to spend forever with him. And, right, and those aren't necessarily bad things until we begin to place everything that we have into that relationship, 
And we forget that the frailty of that relationship comes about because that other person is a human being. And they're fallible. They have flaws. And inevitably, that person is going to let you down. Doesn't mean the relationship's going to be over forever necessarily, but that person's going to disappoint you. And guess what? You're going to disappoint that person. But if we've placed everything, all of our passions, all of our desires in that relationship, when that relationship ends, or even when, when it's fractured, suddenly we're lost. Because everything that we know about ourselves, everything we believe about ourselves is tied to that person, that, that relationship. Or maybe we're chasing our, uh, to, to find self-worth and, and, and uh, belonging with um, the, the crowd that we're hanging out in because they, they make us feel better about ourselves. They give us some confidence that we lack. Maybe, maybe we're chasing um, our passions and our desires on the sports field. And maybe that's the thing that drives us, the thing that motivates us. And it's the thing that, that is number one in our hearts and in our minds. It's the only thing that we think about. It's the only, the only thing that we have a desire to excel in and to work harder in. Right? Now, these things are bad things by themselves, but when they become our be-all, end-all passion and our desire to pursue God suffers as a result, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. And so now we're worshiping these things or these people or these relationships and we're chasing those things. And, and what Paul says is the, those, those paths lead to death and destruction. So he says that we're dead, but we're also enslaved. But then he also says that we are condemned. That we're condemned. So then I'm going to start over in verse 1 and just kind of so it flows together for you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath. Paul says that you're condemned. Condemned to suffer the wrath of God Almighty. Because of your sin, because of your trespass, because you have been enslaved to the things of this world and of the evil one, Satan, and uh, the desires of your body, of your body and your mind, because you have placed all of those things at the forefront of your life, you are condemned. Not only for a physical death, but eternal death and punishment. You are children of wrath. Chapter 1, he says that you are children of God. You have this incredible inheritance. You are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But then he goes back and says, but before all of this, remember who you were. You were dead. You were enslaved to this world and to your own passions and desires. You were also condemned not to just die once here on earth, but to die every day forever for the very rest of eternity. The situation is pretty bleak, hopeless and helpless. And guys, look at me. This, this is your condition without Christ. This is who you are and who I am apart from Jesus Christ. Dead. A slave to the world and a slave to yourself. And condemned, not just for this life, but for all eternity. All right, and this is what makes this passage so beautiful is in verse 4. Verse 4, where Paul says, but God, 
because of his incredible mercy. Look at that. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for it's by grace that you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So we saw our condition, but now look at God's compassion. You see, God's compassion isn't related to us at all. It's about him. See, it's not about what is in us that is important, but it's what is in God that's important. There's nothing good enough inside of you that was worth saving. I know it's a hard truth to hear, right? Because we want, we want to tell ourselves that, that we are good, we are kind, we are smart, whatever, okay? But what we have to offer only leads to death, only leads to enslavement, only leads to condemnation. But God, being rich in mercy, offers up Jesus Christ and raises us from certain death. And not only just raises us from death, but it says that we are now exalted and seated with Jesus Christ and our eternity is secured. Again, not because of who you are or who your parents are or how much self-confidence you have or how good you are at this or that or how uh, humble you are or how many good things you've done or promised to do, but simply because God is rich in mercy. So I want us to just kind of quickly, we're going to list a few things. So this is not something that's in us, but rather what was in him. The first is mercy. God is full of mercy. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy. Because not only does, did God have mercy, but he's rich in mercy. That, that he pours it out all over us. Do you know anybody that's rich in mercy? Somebody you would say is just merciful all the time. And mercy, the, the kind of the, the easy definition of mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Someone has mercy on you when they don't give you the punishment that is coming to you. It says that God is not only merciful, but he's rich in mercy. This is, this is kind of reflected and foreshadowed in Micah 6.8 when the prophet Micah is, is responding to what God says he requires of Israel. And he says, what does the Lord require of you but to, does anybody remember what he, what he requires? Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. To love mercy, right? It's not just to be merciful or to practice mercy, but to love mercy. Do you know that God loves mercy? He's rich in mercy. And you and I have the opportunity to spend eternity with God because he is rich in mercy. But also, he is love. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God loves mercy. He's generous with mercy. He's rich in mercy. But also God is loving. Because God loved us so much that he gave his very own son for us. But also God is grace 
He's full of grace. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for it's by grace you have been saved. You skip down to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. So mercy is not getting the punishment that you do deserve. Grace is kind of the, the, the antithesis of that. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So you think about it this way. God is rich in mercy, so he doesn't condemn you to a, an eternity in hell because of his mercy. He's saving you from destruction. That's mercy. But grace is now he's giving you something you don't deserve. So not only does God pull you out of the depths of despair and eternity of torment and hell, which you and I do deserve, but it says not only that, but he saves us by his grace. Mercy, he pulls us out of death and destruction for all eternity, and grace, he exalts us to the heavenly places with Jesus Christ if we are in him. Mercy and grace go together. And God is rich and full of both of these things. For it's by grace that you have been saved. Paul says, not that you've done anything, but it's just your faith in Jesus Christ because of the grace that he has extended to you. But also he's full of kindness in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus Let me tell you a very difficult truth to understand. But it's a truth that I think if if we understand at at your age, that it will open up a, a better understanding of Scripture. God saved you not just because he loves you. That's part of it. But also God saves you so that he can be glorified in the act of saving you. What scripture says is here that he wants to show his immeasurable kindness to you over and over again through the ages. Part of why he wants to do that is because he loves you and has mercy and grace upon you. He created you in his image and he loves you. Everything that we just sang about in reckless love is true. He leaves the 99 for the one. And his love doesn't make any sense to us as human beings. It's illogical. But he loves us in ways that we could never possibly understand. God loves you, that is 100% true. But also, God's purpose for us and for all of creation is to glorify and bring honor to him. So part of the reason that he saves you and part of the reason that he saved us as he did by sending Jesus Christ to die for us is so that everyone else on the planet now and for the rest of eternity will see how merciful and how good he is and his name and his renown will be made known for the rest of eternity. So not only is it an act of compassion and love for you, but it's a testimony to who he is for all time. And it's when you begin to understand that second part that the first part becomes even more beautiful. Because see, what we do with scripture is make us the focal point of it. Look at me. You are not the focal point of scripture. Who is the focal point of scripture? God, Jesus, Yes, it's it's a book, it's a living, breathing thing about him who we happen to be a part of. So God loves us 
in unimaginable ways. Yet he also saves us so that the rest of humanity might know how merciful he is. And it's not selfish, it's not self-serving, it's God being God. And if we begin to understand that, that ultimately all of this that's being done is ultimately for his glory. Jesus came and died on the cross because he loves us, but also if you read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, he does so because he is sent here to bring glory and honor to God the Father above all else. And so he freely offers up his life, even though he knows it will cost him, it will hurt, because he wants to bring glory and honor to God the Father. So, what does this all mean? We're not living in Ephesus. We are not in the first century. What does this all mean for us? I want us to look at verse 1 and then look at verse 10. Verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay? Now, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Both verses, the beginning of, of this and the end of this, we see that we are walking in one of two ways. Paul describes here, remember who he's writing to. This is important. He's writing to the saints at Ephesus, those who are already believers. So Paul's assumption is that this church, this group of believers, would be just that, believers, those who have already offered up their lives to Jesus Christ and are born-again believers. So he says, the way you once walked, verse 1 and 2, was in death because of your sin and your trespasses. The way that you now walk because you have been made alive in Jesus Christ, right, is in good works. You are God's workmanship prepared beforehand for good works, and now you walk in this way. And so there's this understanding, this assumption that Paul says, once you walked in death because of your sin and your enslavement to the world, but now that you are in Christ, you are walking in him. And you're walking two different directions. You used to be walking toward death and condemnation. But now you're walking with Christ and in Christ toward life. Guys, this is an incredible passage of scripture. And it loses some of its, some of its umph for us today because you've been hearing it since you were like five years old. But imagine being a first century believer and you've only gotten little bits and pieces of scripture. Maybe you've gotten a little bit of Paul's letter to the Roman church. Maybe you've heard some of these pastors come in and these traveling preachers come in and talk and, and you're trying to understand this idea of Jesus. And Paul writes this, this letter that says, once you were dead, hopeless and helpless, but God, being rich in mercy, has offered you life through Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to maintain it. It's simply through the grace of Jesus Christ. 
I was going to show a video clip, but I didn't know how well it would resonate because it's like 30 years old. But there's this, um, are you guys familiar with Death Row? Not the rap rec, uh, label, but um, Death Row as in people being on death row for crimes, right? You're familiar with that? That some states still have the death penalty where for certain capital crimes, people are sentenced to death, right? There are different forms of the death penalty. Technically, on the books, there are, um, there's the gas chamber. In different, st- different states have different forms. So some states have the gas chamber. Some states have lethal injection. Some states have hanging. Um, there's, uh, I think, two states still that have uh, firing squads still technically on the books, although that hasn't happened in quite a while. But technically, by law, those are their forms of capital punishment. When an inmate is on death row, traditionally, that, that last walk from their cell to either the gallows or to the gas chamber or to the room where they give the lethal injection, there's this saying, have you ever heard the saying that, that people, the inmates would say or the guards would say as they make that final walk? Anybody know what they say? Dead man walking. Because there's no coming back from that walk. Once an inmate on death row leaves his cell for the last time, they've had their last meal, a priest or whoever has come in and kind of given them their, those last rites and, and done that last prayer, there's no coming back. There's nothing that can save them from that, that final walk. All the stays of execution and appeals and everything is already over. Their death warrant and certificate has been signed And the only thing left to do is to either pump that liquid into their veins that kills them, to have that gas enter into their lungs and kill them, or for them to hang until there's no breath left in their body. And so guards and inmates alike would, would famously yell out, dead man walking, as an inmate would leave their cell for the last time because it was a certainty. There was no escaping. This is the situation that Paul presents to the Ephesian church in the very beginning of this passage. That you and I, if we are apart from Christ, are dead men walking. There's no hope. There's no help. There's no escape for us. But God, being rich in mercy. So two things as we close. One, look at me. If you have never sat down and stopped and made a decision to trust Jesus Christ with everything that you have and surrendered your life to him. Let me just be honest with you. You're a, dead, you're a dead man walking. Things may be okay for you right now, but you are guaranteed certain death here on this earth. You're living a life of enslavement right now. And unfortunately, you have been condemned to eternity apart from Jesus Christ, death and suffering every day for all eternity. And there's nothing you can do about it but there is something that God can do about it through Jesus. And if that's where you are tonight, then I would, I would plead with you to call out to Jesus. God, I, I need you to save me because I can't do it by myself. I'm hopeless and I'm helpless. But perhaps you've already made that decision tonight. But you may still be walking around this earth like a dead man rather than walking in the life that Jesus Christ offers. So my challenge to you tonight is to live a life 
that honors God. Not a life that honors yourself or a life that seeks to please the world or to feed the passions of the flesh, but a life that honors God so that when people see you, they see the life and the hope that you have, they'll want to say, I need some of that hope. I need some of that life because I'm dead. Let's pray together. Father, God, we thank you that you are a God who reached out to us. That you're rich in mercy and your grace is abundant, but God is also sufficient for us. God, your grace and mercy are all we need. God, but we do have to set aside ourselves, God, and trust you. God, so I pray if there's any student in this room right now, God, who hasn't said, God, I, I can't do life on my own. I need you. God, I pray that they would do that right now. No fancy prayer. God, just simply a cry of desperation. It says, God, I am off course. I have a life full of sin. I need help. I need hope. God, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you sent your son to die for me. God, I want to commit the rest of my life to following after you. God, for those of us who have already done that, God, I pray that we would walk in the light and not in the darkness so that when people around us, this world sees us, God, they will not see a bunch of people chasing after their own passions, chasing after their own desires. God, they will see people who are desperately in love with Jesus Christ. And it's evidenced by the way that we love other people. God, we love you and ask all these things in your name. Amen. All right, you guys are free to go. See y'all. When I was searching, your love was never far. You made a way to get to me. You were the whisper leading me to your heart.